Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Before Coffee. It is Monday. Let's find out what crazy stuff has happened over the weekend. And uh, and there has been a lot, at least for me. I've seen a lot of crazy stuff happening over the weekend. Maybe not crazy crazy, but you know, it's news that we need to talk about. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's go ahead and read our headlines. Today on Before Coffee, Mallorca, P&O ship with thousands of Brins on board collides with a tanker. We talk about Hurricane Adalia. Will Europe's center-right parties accept defeat or sell their souls to the hard right? This is an opinion piece. And we remember Bob Barker, who has come on down at the age of 99. Two-thirds of Britain supporting le- support legalizing assisted dying at poll shows. And in honor of game show host Bob Barker, we spin the squeal of fortune to see who's going to get our wrath today on August 28th. 2023 edition of Before Coffee. All right. All right. Let's reset the music and start our first news story of Monday. That's right. A cruise vessel mooring ropes snapped in high winds, which blew a liner into a nearby oil transport ship off the coast of Palma. This is from Charlie Maloney on The Guardian. A P&O cruise ship carrying thousands of British holidaymakers has crashed into an oil tanker off the coast of Palma and Mallorca after it snapped its moorings. The Britannia was blown by gales towards the other vessels on Sunday after a storm battered the island in the Balearics, the Balearics, Balearics. In P&O, P&O said a small number of people sustained minor injuries. Ricky Stubbs, a passenger, said he and his children had been about to disembark when the crash happened. We were at the stairwell next to the sunset bar, he said. A loud crash came to the bar and the door flung open from with people running in. Within seconds, there was more crashing followed by chaos as people were trying to escape the onslaught of wind and rain. People were being ushered by other guests and snap, staff. You could clearly see how some had injuries due to either falling over debris or the debris fl- falling, flying around, and people were distraught. A couple of minutes later, the captain made came over to the speaker asking all guests to return to the rooms until further instructions. Stubbs said the passengers had been told they would be staying overnight while the boat was moored up to, to so the damage could be assessed. Huge respect for the captain and all the staff as they managed to stay calm and keep everyone updated, he said. The captain made announcements every 10 to 15 minutes once we were back in our cabins and they did a great job in the stressful situation. The 473 million ship was and had entered service in 2015 in the, as the flagship of the P&O fleet. A P&O cruise spokesperson said, On Sunday, the 27th of August, P&O Cruises Britannia was involved in a weather-related incident while alongside the Palma del Mallorca. A small number of individuals sustained minor injuries and are being cared for by the onboard medical center. To allow our technical teams to make an assessment, Britannia will remain alongside the Palma de Mallorca tonight with the onboard entertainment activities scheduled. Mallorca had been experiencing winds of 75 miles per hour and torrential rains, which 
caused sun loungers to be blown into the air. An amber weather alert was in place across the whole of the island and had been extended until midnight on Sunday. The Tramutana region and the north and northeast of the island were most likely to be affected, forecasters had said. But I guess the cruise ship was like, we're huge. We're not going to suffer any problems from this. I mean, I guess it's good that they didn't leak a giant oil tanker. I mean, it was moored, so it was probably empty. Being emptied out, it wasn't full of oil. Maybe. Cruise ships are pretty big, so you definitely yeah. run over another small tank. It's a very small tanker in this image. You can very easily ship. run it over. Yeah. You can show the image. For the viewers big out there, oh god, it's so small. Big old floating prisons. Yeah, if I show the, the image here, there you go. It's a little small, little tanker that nobody. It could get smashed by a cruise ship easily. But yeah, that's my short right. first story about how nothing really bad happened, but wind is scary, guys, and it's strong. Mm. All right. Your next story. Okay. All right. From NBC News, this is from uh, Ethan Sachs from NBC News. Bob Barker, the longtime host of television's The Price is Right. He used his combination of comfort food, charm, and deadpan humor to become an American television staple, has died, according to his longtime publicist. He was 99. It's with profound sadness we announce that the world's greatest MC who has ever lived, Bob Barker, has being a publicist said <laughs> a statement Saturday <laughs> there's a publicist he's the best that ever lived uh, Neil served as Bob Parker's publicist 1987 to 1994 and again for 2020 hmm he hired a publicist three years ago we hired him yeah get my name out there <laughs> <laughs> To commemorate the icon, flowers were placed on Hollywood Walk of Fame star. It wasn't. It was. It was placed on his star on a sidewalk. Yeah. Bob Barker was a television legend who was very committed to the Hollywood community as well as a huge proponent of animal welfare. Said Walk of Fame producer Anna Martinez. He will be missed. When producers hired Barker to host The Price is Right in 1972, they hit the jackpot. The game show had faded significantly from its glory days in the late 50s and had been punted by the two networks before it landed on CBS. But in Barker, the show found its voice and its continued, and it continued to air a decade and a half after he retired. Robert Thompson, a director of the Byer Center for Television and Popular Culture at the Syracuse University, said one reason Barker became an iconic game show host was the sheer strength of his career. Barker spent more than half a century on TV, taking over the host of Truth or Consequences in 1956 and retiring from The Price is Right of the Seven. From the black and white era of television right up to the new century, Bob Barker had a real presence uh, on two really big shows. Secondly, you got you got some game shows where the host just stands behind the podium, but Barkley really interacted with the regular people who were selected as contestants, and he was particularly good at it. Robert Williams Barker was born in Dar Darrington, Washington, on December 12, 1923, at the, and at the age of six moved to the Sioux Indian Reservation in Mission, South Dakota, with his mother and his father, 
After his father died in a workplace accident, his mother, Matilda, a schoolteacher, remarried and moved again to Missouri. After a two-year stint in the Navy at the tail end of World War II, Barker returned to Missouri to attend Drury College, now Drury University, and graduated with a degree in economics. Barker landed a job at the radio station in Florida, at a radio station in Florida, and didn't take long for the word of his smooth delivery to travel across the wires. In 1950, he moved to California to start his own radio program, The Bob Barker Show. Clever name, and Burbank. Television producers clearly turned, clearly tuned in, and Barker landed his first game show in 1956's Truth or Consequences, a job he would hold for 18 years until it went off the air. Barker gave away prizes on The Price is Right, which gained the longest-running daytime game show in TV history in 1990, until his retirement. And when he wasn't giving away the keys to brand-new cars, he was a TV fixture and other time slots. In 1967, he began a 20-year run as the MC of the Miss Universe and Miss America pageants. In 1969, he started a similarly long run as a host of New York New Year's Day Tournament of Roses Parade. The Barker's made-for-television image took a huge hit in 1994 when a Price is Right model accused him of a lawsuit of threatening to fire her if she didn't have sex with him. Although the model, Diane Parkinson, a 19-year veteran of the show, who had been fired the previous year, ultimately dropped her suit. Barker was forced to admit publicly that the two had a less than professional relationship off the screen. Barker's wife, his high school sweetheart, Dorothy Jo Gideon, had died years before in 1981. They married in 1945. The scandal didn't prevent Barker from achieving, be given the Emmy Award for Lifetime Achievement. Barker was also a longtime animal rights activist, ending each episode of The Price is Right with the plea, help control the pet population, have your pets spayed or neutered. He founded a charity in 1995 that provided just such services for pet owners, the DJ&T Foundation, named after his wife and her mother. His passion for the cause can be traced to the first prize he gave away his host of The Price is Right, a fur coat. I went to Mark Goodson and told him I didn't want to be on a stage with these fur coats. Barker told the CBS this morning, in 2019, referring to the show's producer, so took fur coats off. Let's go a bit more. My mom's getting tired. Bob Barker. Hang on. So in honor of the game show host, we need to pull out the squeal. Sorry. The squeal of fortune. You got a yeah. chance at a lot of, <laughs> a a lot of people like the audience. Squeal of fortune. Okay, ready? Ready to spin? Yep. It's on screen. I'm pressing the spin wheel. Is our winner today? We have got Scott Hall has been our winner today. Scott Hall, come on down. You're the next contestant on Squeal of Fortune. Now it's your story, Scott Hall. Okay. My next story is about... It's an opinion piece from Paul Taylor on The Guardian about Europe's center-right and if they are going to try to defeat or sell their soul to the hard-right or the alt right or whatever the hell we want to call them these days there was a time when clear blue water separated europe's mainstream center right from the eurosceptic populists and xenophobes of the hard right 
A Christian Democrat such as Helmut Kohl and Angela Merkel would have nothing in common with and nothing to do with a nativist such as Marine Le Pen or Geert Wilders. No longer. In the run-up to the 2024 European Parliament elections, once sharp lines between pro-European conservative parties and the nationalist far-right are blowing as both seek to tap into the public anger or anxiety over migration, the cost of living, the green transition, and the gender diversity. The long-standing cordon Santier against cooperation with the hard right is fast crumbling, first at local and national levels, and now potentially in Brussels too. That matters because the European Parliament must approve all of the EU's net-zero climate and energy legislation, and the right is already trying to water it down. In the recent weeks, Spain's Conservative Party, People's Party, has fallen just short of victory in the general election despite declaring its readiness to govern with the anti-immigration Vox Party, which has intellectual roots in Franco's fascist ideology. The leader of Germany's Christian Democratic Union, CDU, opposition, Frederick Mertz, suggested his party should work locally through not a national or European level with the extreme right Alternative Führer Deutschland, AFD, which has soared to the second place in national opinion polls. However, Mertz has had to row back after protests from within his party. And the successor to the Dutch Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, as leader of the center-right Liberal Party, VVD Party, Dylan Yesilogos, oh wow, that is not a Dutch name, Yesilogos Zergerius, I was ready for a Dutch name and it was not a Dutch name. <laughs> Um, Ruta has resigned in July, triggering a snap election that will be held in November, has ditched a long-standing refusal to work with Wilders' anti-immigration PVV party. Mainstream conservative governments in Sweden and Finland, meanwhile, have taken office thanks to the support of the hard-right nationalists in, respectively, the Sweden de- Swedish de- Democrats and the Finnish party. In Italy, the hard-right last year won power over in the government, headed by Giorgia Maloney, of the post-fascist Brothers of Italy in France, the conservative Gaullist of Les Republicans Republic- are vying to outdo Le Pen and her extreme-right rival Eric Zemmour in a demonizing Islam by demonizing Islam and proposing new ways to stop asylum seekers. Party leader Eric Chioti wants to officially declare that the French constitution has primacy over European law in order to impose quotas of asylum seekers. That is the same assertion with which hard-right nationalist governments in Poland and Hungary are defying the EU's treaty order over the independence of the judiciary. The reason for the lurch to the right is clear. Europe's big tent center-right parties are now succumbing to the electoral fragmentation that has been afflicted to the mainstream left, with green and radical left groups luring voters away from social democratic parties. In a more diverse, individualistic society, conservative voters are no longer so bound together by the church, family values, or free market ideology. They differ on economic protectorism, European integration, climate action, and social issues such as LGBTQ rights. In Germany, the CDU and its Bavarian sister party, which bestrode the country's post-war political landscape for decades, scored just 24.1% in the 2021 general election following Merkel's retirement. Even with its current 26% rating, the center-right has no hope of forming conservative governments without the AFD, which is polling above 20%. Yet, cooperating with the nativists has hitherto been taboo, not least because of the long shadow of Germany's Nazi party and its past. 
But all over Europe, mainstream conservatives faced the same dilemma as they struggled when back lost chunks of their electorate among blue-collar, rural, and middle-class voters, and to attract younger people tempted by a far-right protest, vote, or abstination. Marginalizing and demonizing the radical right has failed to staunch the losses. Adopting part of the populist vocabulary and policies on issues such as migration and identity has not worked out either, except perhaps for Denmark's social democrats. Another option includes seeking to engage and moderate the far right through coalitions, or making targeted pitches to discontented voter groups such as the farmers and suburban motorists, who fear the EU's Green Deal pushed by a European Commission led by a German Christian Democratic Ursula von der Leyen will take away their cars and ruin their livelihoods. Manfred Weber, leader of the European People Party, EPP, center-right umbrella group, is experimenting with both approaches as he seeks to reposition the long-dominant political family before next June's EU-wide vote. In January, he met, Maloney, he met Maloney to explore a possible alliance between the EPP and the Nationalist European Conservatism Reformers, ECR, after next year's elections. The EU legislator is currently dominated by a three-way centrist pact between the EPP, the Socialists and Democrats, and the market liberal Renew Europe group. ECR includes Poland's right-wing ruling Law and Justice Party, PIS, Spain's Vox, the Sweden Democrats, the Finns parties, yet Weber has repeatedly declared that EPP would not work with far-right extremists, explicitly naming Le Pen, the AFD, and PIS. In July, he made an unsuccessful attempt alongside the ECR and the far-right identity and democratic group, ID, to defeat the EU's nature restoration law, a key environmental protection measure that he said would burden farmers and force up food prices. Weber is trying to protect the EPP as the farmers and motorists' friend without embracing the hard rights denial of climate science. It is a precarious balancing out act, especially when it puts him against von der Leyen from his own party. A formal alliance with ECR seems unlikely, not least because it would require the support of liberals including French President Emmanuel Macron's Renaissance Party. If such, the pact would, if, if such a pact did not come about, it would probably push back against ambitious European Green Deal targets, take a tougher line on asylum and immigration policy, and resist any erosion of national, national sovereignty. More plausible is that Weber is trying to lure Maloney's rising party into joining the center-right EPP, which would strengthen his hand with its current partners. While EPP officials say that this is just about tactics and responding pragmatically to public concerns, Weber and his political family face a fundamental choice. In deciding whether to ostracize, imitate, or forge alliances with the nationalist hard right, Europe's mainstream center-right parties must choose between potentially losing voters or losing their souls. Paul Taylor is a senior fellow of the Friends of Europe think tank and a former European affairs editor at Routers. So that's where he's coming from. That's his opinion on what might happen. Uh, I have to agree that it's very concerning that all the center moderate parties would rather go more right than go left at all, right? Oh, these people think we should do these radical leftist I ideas or something. Nah, let's just go closer and closer to traditionalism and non-changing and just pretending everything's fine like the right people believe everything's gonna be okay if we just ignore it and push it under the rug your next story right on okay well they're always um
The right is always fighting these cultural wars that don't really exist except in people's heads. This is from the, this hurricane news is from Judson Jones and Rebecca Carbello, uh, the New York Times. Tropical storm Adalia, I-D-A-L-I-A, Adalia, was intensifying and expecting, or Adalia, was expecting to strengthen into a dangerous major hurricane by the time it reaches Florida's Gulf Coast early Wednesday, forecaster said. The storm is expected to strengthen slowly on Monday and becomes a Gulf scope of confidence is high among forecasters that rapid intensification will encourage Tuesday occur Tuesday. Turning the storm from a major category three hurricane with winds up and up to 115 miles per hour. The storm is expected to strengthen all the way up until landfill after it passes over western Cuba and moves north into the Gulf. Life-threatening storm surge and dangerous winds are likely to the west coast of Florida and Panhandle as early as Tuesday. The exact landfall location will be difficult to predict since the storm is expected to parallel the west coast of Florida. The combination of dangerous storm surge and the tide will cause normally dry areas near the west coast to be flooded by rising waters moving inland from the shoreline, the center said. Storm surge watches were in effect for parts of Florida as well as a hurricane watch extending from Englewood to Indian Pass, which including Tampa Bay hurricane watches we're also in fact for Cuba. A storm surge which a storm surge watch means that there's a possibility of life-threatening inundation. A tropical storm watch was also issued for the Gulf Coast south of Englewood, which is about 80 miles south of Tampa, to Chokoloski, a community roughly 65 miles south of Fort Myers, while a storm surge watch was in effect from Chokoloski to Indian Pass. Winds were predicted to reach the peak of 100 miles per hour, Jamie Rome, Deputy, Deputy Director of the National Hurricane Center, said in an update on Sunday evening. Evacuations will be necessary for this storm, may be necessary. The hazards absolutely will extend beyond the cone, he added, referring to the forecast map showing the storm's potential path. Do not focus exclusively on the cone to determine your risk. Adalia, Adalia, which formed on Sunday, also threatens to bring heavy rains to Georgia and the Carolinas, forecasters said. The Florida Division of Emergency Management told residents to keep their gas tanks at least halfway full in case emergency evacuation orders were issued. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida signed an executive order on Saturday declaring state of emergency in 33 counties in preparation for the storm. If you are in the path of the storm, you should expect power outages, so please prepare for that, he said on Sunday. If you are a power dependent, particularly people who are elderly or have medical needs, please plan on going to a shelter. The state mobilized 1,100 members of the National Guard, which has 2,400 high water vehicles and 12 aircraft ready for rescue efforts. Electrical companies will have workers on standby starting on Monday. The Hurricane Center ordered an advisory on Monday morning that in, in Adalia could produce four to seven inches of rain in western Cuba and four to eight inches in portions of west of 
west coast of Florida, the Florida Panhandle, southeast Georgia, and the, Carol the eastern Carolinas. This rainfall may lead to flash and urban flooding and landslides across western Cuba, according to the center. On Sunday night, Cuba issued a hurricane warning for Pinar del Rio, a city located two hour drive west of the country's capital of Havana. The Cuban government also upgraded the tropical storm watch for the Isle of Youth to a tropical storm warning. A tropical storm warning was issued for the dry Tortagas Island, which had previously been under a watch advisory, and the watch was in effect for lower Florida Keys, west of Seven Mile Bridge, the center said on Sunday night. A combination of tide and storm surge was expected to bring water levels up to 11 feet in some parts of Florida, close forecasters said. The west coast of Florida has been no stranger to hurricanes in the past several years. Hurricane Ian in 22 and Hurricane Michael in 18 caused extensive damage to strong winds and storm surges after moving out of the Caribbean and rapidly intensifying the Gulf of Mexico before striking Florida as major hurricanes. Michael hit the Panhandle while Ian hit the southwestern edge of the state. Other storms like Etta in 2020 and Elsa in 21 also reached a hurricane strength in the Gulf, but weekend before making landfall along the Big Bend coast of Florida. The Atlanta hurricane season started on June 1st and runs through November 30th, unless there's overtime. Your story. Unless there's overtime. <laughs> you never and we're, they're charging extra for overtime over there on the I Atlantic. Because they're veteran, they're veteran storms there on the Atlantic Ocean. Okay. <laughs> In my next story, let's talk about assisted dying. I think we've talked about this before when it came to a dip. Was it still the UK? It might have been the UK. I don't remember, but we've talked about it before. And some people want to be given the rights to say, you know what? My life sucks. I'm suffering from an illness or I'm too old to live anymore. Just, just let me die. Here, I signed the paper. Right. Let me go. Oh, that's what happened. We're talking about that murder that occurred in the, oh, yeah, yeah. the 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 husband was like she asked me to kill her because she was suffering too much so I did. And now I'm up for up for murder because it technically was murder. Legally was murder because there was no legal entity to officiate the death, basically. So Because I filled the gas just because I filled the car with gas before I ran her over the second time. It was yeah. You know, Anyways, let's talk about what Britons believe about this. This is from Robert Booth, social affairs correspondent on The Guardian. More people believe it's accessible to break the law to help a friend or loved one who wants to die than believe it's wrong, a snapshot of UK public opinion on assisted dying has revealed. The findings come that MPs weigh possible changes to the laws governing end-of-life decisions and and as a terminally ill Lancaster woman who is preparing to travel to Switzerland to end her life has described the UK law against assisted dying as cruel and ana anachronistic. Rosemary Walker, who has an in incurable blood cancer, spoke out as research carried out by Ipsos UK showed that 38% thought it was accessible to break the law versus 29 who did not. The MPs are preparing to recommend how ministers should call Oh, should respond to calls for the UK government to follow Australia, New Zealand, and 10 US states in allowing terminally ill, mentally competent adults to end their own lives. Two-thirds of the public also supported legalizing assisted dying, the research showed. Walker said, The current law is forcing me to choose a death I don't want, 
Hundreds of miles from home with strangers and none of us want that. Two thirds of the UK, uh, here's the little graph, which I guess I can open in a new tab. No, I cannot open it in a new tab. Well, you don't get to see the graph, but the graph shows that 65% think it's legal to do that. The question is, do you think it should be legal for a doctor to assist a patient aged 18 and over in ending the life by prescribing life-ending medication that the patient can take themselves if certain conditions are met? And 65% say yes, that should be legal. 17% say no, that should not be legal. And 18% are don't know and prefer not to say. So abdicated their vote. So that's a very high percentage of people who are like, yeah, I don't see the problem. Just make it a law already. With hundreds of dying people taking their own lives each year and dozens more traveling to Switzerland, one of the several European nations with more relaxed laws, 65% of people in the UK believe it should become legal for a doctor to assist an adult of sound mind, which, you know, defines sound mind, right? With less than six months to live voluntarily and their own life subject to the high court confirmation. I mean, in a way that kind of makes an argument against, for example, if you get dementia or you get Alzheimer's, you're not allowed to die if, if you write in a contract at 30 or something if i get if i get a brain altering disease that you know basically changed my personality and i don't even know anybody anymore can't kill me you know because yep. you can't they're not a person right according to uh, our defined laws they're not of sound mind so they're not even a person anymore they're they're 60 human or whatever 61% of people who support a doctor being able to administer life-ending medicine, although there were signs of a small fall in support for the practice compared with 2022, which was at 68%, when there was a slight variation in the question wording. The polling also showed a small drop in the number of people who favored assisted dying for adults enduring mental or emotional suffering from 48% in 2022 to 35% in 2023. So if you're depressed, you're not allowed to kill yourself. But if you're dying of cancer, you're allowed to kill yourself. Well, I mean, I guess you're allowed to kill yourself in any scenario. Just nobody's allowed to help you. Uh, <laughs> one thing you're allowed to do is kill yourself. You can't be put in jail for dying. Until he starts to smell. Yeah. <laughs> the figures cement a stable level of support for reform and come after hundreds of people contributed to a highly charged parliamentary inquiry into assisted dying that heard that with the practice remaining illegal in the UK, the Swiss organization Dignitas has helped 540 British people kill themselves in the past two decades. Last month, the BBC News presenter Evan Davis revealed how his father, 92, killed himself last summer in Surrey after deciding it was a better option than living with a failing eyesight, incontinence, and relying on round-the-clock care workers whom described in a letter to his children as intruders in my house overnight. Davis said it was very sad to think of him having a plan to plan this all on his own. I mean, it's also really hard as a child to, like, take care of your 92 ailing father, so that's why they had Robin to... <laughs> had, that's why they had to hire care workers, right? And that's what didn't help with the situation at all. Campaigners against assisted dying said public concern about legalizing the practice would likely be fueled by stories coming out of Canada and other countries with more liable assisted dying laws that were likely to be proposed in the UK. In Canada, a veteran complained assisted dying was suggested when he contacted a helpline for guidance with dealing with post-traumatic stress. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think I've heard about this in Canada. Some people, some people would be calling like a suicide helpline or something, and they'd be like, "Well, actually, maybe you should die. Sounds like your life is awful." And like, wait a minute, you're not supposed to tell me that. I know a solution for your problem. There's no cure. You should just get assisted dying and end it with yeah, your diagnostician right there. Yeah, you got a point there, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> that is kind of worrying. And there is an argument that you can just. You know, falsify a document saying, look, they signed the paperwork, you know, legalized murder or whatever. They signed the paperwork, see? So I killed them, assistedly. And it's like, actually, that paperwork you signed was falsified, and now you've committed murder as a doctor, but you didn't know because you thought everything was in order. The more people hear about what is happening in other countries, the more danger they see in changing the law, said Alistair Thompson, the spokesperson for Care Not Killing campaign group. But Sarah Wooten... The chief executive of Dignity in Dying, a charity that supports change in the law, said, with assisted dying bills making their way through the Scottish, Jersey, and Isle of Man parliaments and the launch of the assisted dying inquiry in Westminster, change is now inevitable. We urge the next government to listen to the public and make time for this important debate. Speaking about Walker, she said, the public know that denying her the last right is de deeply wrong, and polls have consistently shown that support for reform is high across all parts of society and the country going back decades. In July, Helen Watley, the health minister with responsibility for end-of-life care, told the House of Commons Health and Social Care Select Committee inquiry into assisted dying that if, they, if the will of Parliament is that the law on the assisted dying should change, then the government would not stand in its way. She said it was a matter of MP's conscience, but she did not commit to the government guaranteeing sufficient parliamentary time for debate. The last time Parliament considered legalizing assistant dying was in 2015. MPs voted against the motion 330 to 118. Since then, assisted dying laws have progressed in Scotland, the Isles of Man, and Jersey. In June, the Royal College of Physicians dropped its opposition to legalizing assisted dying, moving a p to a position of neutrality. 61% of members supported a law change to allow the practice, while 29% were opposed. Campaigners for assisted dying believe the means fewer MPs would oppose reform after many-sided opposition from the medical profession at the last vote. An aging population all means demand for palliative care services will rise from about 2,400 and wait, 245,000 people in 2021 and 2022 to just about just about under 380,000 in 2030 to 2031, the charity Sue Ryder Care estimates. Assisted dying understandably raises strong emotions, but this new data continues the pattern found in opinion polls over several years that most Britons support changing the law to allow assisted dying under certain circumstances, said Gideon Skinner, the head of political research at EPOS UK. Those circumstances and safeguards are important. There is less of a consensus on the support for non-terminal cases of mental suffering, for under-18s, or for breaking the law as it now stands. The British Social Attitude Survey, which had recorded stable support for voluntary euthanasia since the 1980s, has noted that those with no religion are more likely to support it. The 2021 census showed that 30% of people in England and Wales described themselves as having no religion, a rise of more than 22 percentage points over 20 years. At least one person with severe and terminal illness, such as a cancer with low survival weight, chronic Eschmetic heart conditions or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease kills themselves each day in England, according to figures from the Office of National Statistics. They must do so without help from a doctor or a friend or family member, unless they risk prosecution, like the, the, the husband we were talking, right? She asked for assisted 
dying. And unfortunately, he was in a country where that's not supported. So now he's up for murder. So if you ever ask, if you try to ask a loved one to be there for you in your last moments, they could be considered an accessory to murder. Because they didn't cool. stop you from killing yourself or something. I wanted your money anyway, so there you go. <laughs> However, opponents assisted dying told a recent parliamentary inquiry of a man who wanted to kill himself within two weeks but was alive 11 years later. They described another who had discussed assisted dying, but when asked what they would like to do, he said he would first go on a cruise and went on three such trips before he died. They warned that legalizing the practice will increase the risk of coercion and elder abuse. While I can agree with that statement, I also think it's just nice to have the choice open there. Yeah, well. Because just having the option to choose to do it, like like they said, this guy wanted to kill himself, but then 11 years later, he didn't. He was still alive 11 years later. Right? He was, But he's given the choice, the idea of the choice, that you're free to go do assisted death or whatever. And with that choice, you're given a bigger room to think, right? If you're giving less and less choices, you're more and more in a corner. So you're more you're more coerced. I would argue that the less choice you have, the more coerced you are. Rather than the more choice you have, the more coerced you are. But yet again, they give the they give the Canadian example where somebody was just like, just kill yourself, dude. I don't know. <laughs> Here, try this. Here's a pamphlet, you know. So uh, on to your next story about Scott. All right, so we gotta figure out who Scott Hall is. Uh, yep. He was actually the first person that turned himself in last week, so he must have been close. He must have been in his neighborhood or something. <laughs> but he lives right down the, Fox, the, the road. This is from Fox Five of Atlanta. Randy Travis, not the country singer, probably not a country singer. Maybe he is a. <laughs> it's from Douglas County, Georgia. The Fulton County election racketeering case implicated 19 people, but four are accused of committing crimes far from Atlanta. It's a place more than 200 miles from Fulton County, a place that couldn't be more different. Sent overall voting for in 2020. In Fulton County, roughly the same, 73% preferred Joe Biden in, the, in Fulton County where the trial is being held. 73% preferred Joe Biden in the last election. Coffee County has 43,000 residents. Unless they're related to, unless you're, they're related to one, chances are no one in North Georgia has thought much about this rural community in South Georgia. Despite their differences, the two will be forever connected because of the historic indictment of former President Trump and his supporters. But it's likely that the Coffee County would have remained unnoticed by District Attorney Fonnie Willis, if not for a nonprofit election security group and a future defendant who felt the need to brag. We knew it was important, said Marilyn Marks, executive director of the Coalition of Good Governance, but we seek now that D.A. Willis also saw, we see now that D.A. Willis also saw the important part was in the massive conspiracy. Marilyn Marks shares her group's findings at the community event. Long before the 2020 election, Mark's organization sued the state of Georgia and Brad Raffensperger concerned about the security of computerized voting machines. It's their lawsuit that led the Georgia's now point and feed into the scanner. They want the state to eventually get rid of the touch screens. According to court filing on March 7th, 2021, Atlanta bondsman Scott Hall, Scott Hall, 
cold called Marx, demanding that she give him any evidence she had that would help him prove the machines were manipulated to wrongly steal the state from Trump. But the enemy of your enemy is not necessarily your friend. Marx insists that her group is non political. They had no evidence wrong in the 2020 count. And at that point, my first instinct was to slam the phone down. She, she recounted for Fox's 5i team. My second instinct was to go into sweet little old lady mode and hit the rec record button. Here's what Hall says on the recording about a visit he took to Coffee County. I went down there, we scanned every freaking ballot. They said, we gave you permission, go for it. So they went there and imagined every heart image image every hard drive of every piece of equipment. Neither the state of Georgia nor Dominion had given anyone permission to access their voting systems. In fact, a warning mailed out to the Secretary of State's office two months earlier warned against providing copies of software. Information that could harm the security election equipment cannot be provided. The statement stressed, highlighting the word, cannot. Scott Hall had just admitted being part of a group that copied Dominion Boy's office. Now I was in triple shock and I didn't know what to think, Marsh remembered. She said she alerted the state, but no one seemed interested, not knowing exactly when the copying was done. Mark's group filed open records requests for three months of elections office surveillance video, which according to court filings, Coffee County denied having. Finally, a year ago, County turned over the videos, and they were a gold mine. I think the videos just made it all very real, Marx agreed. They show Hall, Coffee County GOP Chair Kathy Latham, who looks like a criminal, sorry, Elections su Supervisor Misty Hampton, welcoming representatives of an Atlanta cyber company that was paid $26,000, 220 by Trump ally Sidney Powell to copy Dominion software. Last week, Hall, Latham, Hampton, and Powell were indicted in the same seven counts for racketeering, computer theft, computer fraud, and conspiracy to defraud the state. Before their arrest, Latham and Hampton were deposed by the Coalition for Good Governance as their part in civil lawsuit against the state. Latham, a retired high school economics teacher, refused to answer many of the questions from the Coalition attorney, David Cross. Cross, have you ever had any communication with Rudy Giuliani? Cross, Fifth Amendment. In their court filings, coalition accused Latham of lying about their extended involvement. Like this exchange. Cross, did you see Scott Hall? Cross, no, Scott came from outside and he, and I talked outside and I was glad to have him and I left. Well, anyway, it goes on and on about their testimony, but uh, as we say, Scott Hall was clearly trying to commit voter fraud which Trump accused everybody else of doing. This guy was yep. actually doing it for him, which again is known as projection. Accuse somebody of doing something that you're doing. Your story. Okay. As they, but they always, it's always these cases where the people who are saying you're doing something are actually the one doing it, and they would know because they're doing it. What is it called? Call, uh, call, calling the kettle black, whatever. In culture news, it's over. World Cup kiss becomes Spanish football's Me Too movement. This is from Ashifa Kassam, European Community Affairs Correspondent. When Jenny Hermoso arrived in the stands, the standing ovation was thundering. 
On the field below, Atletico de Madrid and AC Milan were battling it out for the Women's Cup. But the message, scrawled on posters, temporary tattoos, and meters-long banner unfurled by the players was unanimous at the stadium in Madrid on Sunday night, or Saturday night. We're with you, Jenny Hermoso. It was a hint of how the tumultuous events of the past week since La Roya's dazzling World Cup win had supercharged a long-running battle for equality in women's football. As the hashtag Se Acabo, meaning it's over, was embraced from Sevilla to Santander, it was clear that Spanish football's Me Too movement had arrived. Los jugadores de Sevilla lucerían una camiseta con el lema Se Acabo en apoyo at... Jenny Hermosa. I don't know what that says, but all our Spanish viewers out there know what it says. After years of pushing for change, Spain's players were eager to seize on the momentum. Grandma, tell me about how your team won the World Cup, read it at an illustration posted on social media by La Roja's, Roja's Misa Rodriguez on Friday. The grandmother's answer, we didn't just win the World Cup, little one. We won so much more. Se agapo. Houses, hours earlier, Luis Rubiales, the embattled head of the Spanish Football Federation, had lashed out at fake feminism and bemoaned what he called a social assassination in the reaction to his grabbing Hermosa by the head and kissing her on the lips during the medal ceremony at the World Cup. On Saturday, FIFA suspended Rubiales for 90 days, ordering both him and the Federation to stay away from Hermosa and those close to her. The backlash against Robiales' conduct was swift. The World Cup champions said they would not play for the national team until the Federation's leadership was removed. More than 50 other female players said the same. On Saturday, nearly all of the coaching and technical staff for Spain's women's team resigned, joining the seven members of the Spanish Football Federation who reportedly responded to Robiales' speech with their resignation. In six days, feminism swept Robiales away. The El Pais journalist Isabel Valiadis or Valdis wrote on social media, In six days, Se Acabo has replaced the kiss that Hermosa never consented to. Condemnation over Rubiales' behavior cut across political lines. The country's acting Prime Minister, Pedro Sanchez, called the kiss an unacceptable gesture, while the country's acting Equality Minister, Podemos Irene Montero, described it as a form of sexual violence that was women that we women suffer on a daily basis and until now have been invisible. The Conservative People's Party, criticized by, criticized by women's group for allowing the anti-feminist far-right to gain a foothold in local and regional governments across Pran, Spain, also weighed in. Spaniards don't deserve this, the party Puka Camara told broadcaster Antenna 3. It's a global embarrassment for the whole country and it's tarnished the incredible victory of a woman's, a group of women who should be the only protagonist. Across Spain, many sought to broaden the conversation. No longer was this only the story of the team that had long wrestled with the perception that the Federation saw them as less worthy than their male counterparts. What had played out to be the world stage was a power imbalance that hit home for many. To all the guys who are stunned by the reactions against Rubiales, is because this happened to all of us, the journalist Iransu Varela wrote on social media, with our boss, with our client, with our teacher, with our friend, with a stranger, with you. Rubiales initially dismissed his critics as idiots and stupid people, and later offered an apology that was widely seen as half-hearted. As the uproar continued, he can change tack on Friday and sought to portray his kiss as consensual, claiming he had asked Hermosa if she could give her a peck, and then she replied, okay. 
Monster rejected any suggestion that he the kiss was consensual. She described Rubiales' words as categorically false and said the conversation did not happen. Rubiales offered up the claim he insisted he would stay on as president of the Federation. I will not resign, he said repeatedly in his defiance, earning party applause among the Federation's member in attendance, including Jorge Vilda, the coach of the Spanish women's national team, and the men's national team coach, Luis de Fuente, de la Fuente. Natalie Torrenta, the editor of the sports website Revelio, Relevio, said that reaction from the Federation, which counts just six women among the 140 members to Rubiales' refusal to resign, offered a glimpse of the deep-rooted systematic issues the female players have long faced. Five times he shouted, he shouted it, clinging a little tighter to his position in each sentence, and shouting what little dignity he had left as an institutional representative, she said in a piece that described Rubiales as a global embarrassment. On Saturday, both Vilda and De La Fuente sought to distance themselves from Rubiales, issuing statements criticizing his actions. Spanish media described their U-turns as a sign that Rubiales was becoming increasingly isolated from those who had long protected him. The country's most powerful football clubs, from Real Madrid to Barcelona, had also condemned Rubiales' behavior. On Sunday, as the Spanish government promised to continue its effort to have Rubiales removed from the Federation, women across the country called for the battle to continue. Despite Rubiales' attempt to gaslight all of the women in this country, let's show that we are a society that refuses to take a step backwards, Patricia Moreno wrote in Vogue España. Our World Cup champions will thus have to achieve something even more historic than sporting a title. The fall of a man who believed he was invincible. Right. So, the reason I picked this story was because uh, I'm a woman, but also because I was seeing a little of this on social media about how some people, of course, will always go straight to the victim blaming and go, well, why didn't she do this? Why didn't she punch him in the face? Why didn't she kick him off the podium? And it's like... People don't know, and this is a fun, uh, or I guess it's not a fun fact, it's an interesting fact about the human psyche. There's two different kinds of reactions you can have to danger. There's the fight and flight, and then there's the freeze and do nothing, or I guess that's three. There's three different things, okay? Now, the most common, and I, I don't know if it's a socialized reaction or an instinctual reaction, but the most common reaction women have to danger is actually to just let it happen and then deal with the trauma later. That is why there's so many terrible reports uh, of rape cases and other sexual assault because there's no substantial evidence, right, that they there was no consent, right? Unless you're not, unless you're screaming and flailing and you know punching people, ah, obviously you consented it because consent is such a hard thing to read, especially if your brain just goes into kind of deer in the headlights mode and you're just like. Okay, this is happening to me right now. Anyways, okay, it's over now. I'm gonna go deal with that in my own privacy because I can't deal with it in public because if women react any way emotionally towards something that is considerably bad, they'll also be called a dramatic or over-emotional or it's not that serious. Unfortunately, a lot of women, especially in countries that are more traditionally male-centric, have to deal with everything they do being... Uh, delegitimized everything they do to be oh that's not a big deal I don't think it's a big deal but uh so that's why this has been such a big thing because Spain is traditional very traditionalist in that way and the head of your the head of your sports um federation should not be just 
grabbing people by the head and kissing them like full two hands right it wasn't like a lean on the cheek or or like a, a chin thing it was a full give me your head put it on my face so and she didn't consent to it that's what she said so there's no question about that anyways that's my cultural story on to this day in history Stay in history. Oh, man, lost it again. <laughs> the fall of the Western Roman Empire was completed on this day in 476. Uh, Emperor Rome Mallus Augustus was deposed by German warrior Odacer or something like that. 1793, the siege of Toulon in the French Revolutionary Wars began. 1850, Richard Wagner's, or Wagner's opera, Lohengrin, was performed for the first time in Wilmar, Germany. 1914, the first major agreement of the British and German native, navies during World War I occurred at the Battle of Helgoland Bight. 1938, liberal politician Paul Martin, who is the Prime Minister of Canada, uh, was born. 1946, The Killers, starring Iva Gardner and Burt Lancaster, which is a movie, was released. 1952, writer and teacher Rita Dove uh, was born in Akron, Ohio. 1968, protests at the Democratic Convention broke out violent demonstrations by the police. 1993, spacecraft Galileo took pictures of uh, the asteroid Ida. 1996, the 15-year marriage of Princess of Wales of Diana and, well, they got divorced. Prince Charles and Lady Princess Diana got divorced on this day, 1996. Uh, 2014, American spy John Walker, U.S. Navy communications specialist, uh, who was uh, espionage, died in prison at the age of 77. 2020, American actor Chadwick Boseman, who had iconic roles in such movies as Black Panther, died at the age of 43 from colon cancer. Also on this day, featured event was the 1963 Civil Rights March on Washington. On this day in 1963, some 200,000 people marched on Washington, D.C., an event that became the high point of the Civil Rights Movement, especially remembered for the I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King 60 years ago today. And it is the birthday of American murder victim Emmett Till, who was born on August 28, 1955. Also birthdays today, 1962, David Fincher, American director, 1965, Shania Twain, Canadian musician. 1969, Sheryl Sandberg, American businessman. 1982, Leanne Rimes. And 1986, Florence Welch. And what day is it today? It is International Read Comics in Public Day. I didn't know there was like maybe some kind of restrictions in the past on that kind of thing. Google no Pizza Assistant. I got a pop-up ad. 
It's also National Thoughtful Day, so be thoughtful today, as you probably should be every day. National Bowtie Day, National Cherry Turnover Day. That's a little dessert. It's not just turning over cherries. <laughs> and National Red Wine Day, and it's Rainbow Bridge Remembrance Day. That's it. Rainbow Bridge Remembrance Day. That's the day. What does that mean? What's that? Rainbow Bridge Remembrance. Oh, I think you're disconnecting. Well, either way. I think, I think your internet's dying, so we'll just go. This has been Allison here from the Netherlands. Uh, hoping to see you on Tuesday for some more news about Europe and the world beyond on Before Coffee. I think Raj is disconnecting, so I, I'll do the outro today <laughs> so that we doesn't have to continue being a slideshow presentation. Oh, wait, I think he's back. Are you back? Yeah, I'm here. Uh, so this is Roger signing off for August 28th. August 28th, 2023 edition of Before Coffee. 2023. We're going to get there one day. We're going to say it. Coffee. Be sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notify buttons, and follow our other channels, Toxic Alley, History of Gravy, and Scratchy Old